Chapter 22, Splash 1, Now I'm Home. The Thunderbird was not the shittiest motel in town. It was the motel across the street from the shittiest motel in town. One could argue that the differences between the Marco Polo and the Thunderbird were slight, but I contend they were vast and important. As far as amenities, the establishments were carbon copies of each other. Behind the front desks of each, defeated owner-slash-operators suspiciously eyeballed new guests through a curry-scorched haze. Not that they really cared. Your room key was promptly handed to you even if you registered as Charles Fictitious from East Fabrication, Utah, and suddenly couldn't find your ID, so long as your payment was up front and in cash. Rooms in each offered bedspreads made of fibers not found in nature, tastefully decorated with cigarette burns, hairs, and questionable stains. Each showcased delightfully moldy shag carpeting. Each had handwritten signs on the back of the room doors prohibiting drug use and kindly requesting that there be no parties after 11 p.m. Their histories were shared as well. In their American-owned, fresh-faced heydays, both had provided clean lodging for value-minded families coming to town to gaze with wonder at the mind-blowing and futuristic vision that was the Space Needle. From those golden days, both properties began their slow march to the present, each becoming completely ravaged by shady characters, outlaws, hookers, pimps, and drug addicts seeking shelter. Eventually, they were given up on by mom and pop who had dishearteningly watched their investments and dreams become crime-infested warts on the ass of Aurora. Aurora Avenue runs north from downtown past the University District, through Greenwood, and on up to Shoreline, Linwood, and other suburban areas that might as well be Canada. Once upon a time, as part of Highway 99, it was the primary artery in and out of the city. As Seattle grew, it was bullied into submission by the new and oh-so-glamorous Interstate 5, which ran parallel maybe a mile to the east. Stripped of her identity, resentful of the attention, and jealous of the federally funded construction program, Aurora slipped into depression and let herself go. The fact that it sat on the west side of the street was a predominant reason I favored the Thunderbird. A cement barrier of considerable girth lay in the middle of the road, separating north and southbound traffic, stopping drunk drivers from swerving into oncoming cars, and thwarting foolhardy pedestrians trying to cross the deceptively busy thoroughfare. It also inadvertently protected us from a great deal of law enforcement scrutiny. Every day around dusk, just like clockwork, two or three police cruisers would roll north into the parking lot of the Marco Polo, to harass loitering patrons and question the proprietor about suspicious activity in the area. They would go room to room, knocking on doors under the false pretense of showing pictures of recent runaways to guests. But their real agenda was sniffing out pot smokers for an easy bust. Most of the time they would cuff their quota or be distracted by an emergency radio call and peel out of the parking lot onto other pig business leaving the Marco Polo reeling from her nightly shakedown, while her seedier twin sister sat on the other side of the concrete median, unmolested. No one stayed at the Thunderbird Motel. You ended up there. You hid there. But no one stayed there on purpose. Kelly and I paged Eddie. We paged Tommy. 
We paged the Miguels. We paged the Jose's. We paged every drug dealer we knew as if pagers were going out of style. I would meet them in the parking lot of the food giant in Wallingford one at a time, and Kelly would stay in the room and monitor the local news on TV. We bought every piece of dope and every gram of coke we could get our hands on. Our plan was simple. Hang the do not disturb sign, pull the shades, and fuck and suck and shoot drugs until either the heat was off or the world ended, whichever came first. I rested my elbow on the towel rack as I patiently waited for my bladder to empty. The rack crashed to the floor as one of the mismatched screws that haphazardly attached it to the rotten wood paneling bounced into the toilet bowl. What are you doing in there? She yelled from one of the two unmade twin beds. Just destroying the bathroom, dear. Continuing the destruction of the bathroom would have been more apropos. We were getting sloppy. The sink and towels were splattered with black hair dye and the lid of the toilet tank was covered in black smudges from burned bent spoons. We had been insanely lucky so far, but if we had to ditch that room in a hurry, it wouldn't have taken a master sleuth to realize they needed to update the description of their person of interest and the places she would be likely to frequent. Due to a technical glitch in its barbaric video system, not to mention the ridiculously large summer hat Kelly had been wearing, the surveillance footage from the first bank was useless. When the footage from the second bank robbery hit the local news, however, it caused quite a stir, temporarily putting a halt to our little reign of terror and fortuitously imploding the career of a very popular news anchor. Clay Bartell was handsome in a way on which mother and daughter could agree. He had the standard-issue anchorman's head of hair, unmovable and impenetrable, the kind of hair one could imagine would still remain on his skull years after his soul had left this mortal coil. But he also had piercing blue eyes that had what I believe is called a twinkle. He was so beautiful that even the punk rock girls didn't mind his mandatory newscaster's mustache. He had been seen playing pool in Belltown, drinking pitchers of beer with local fans, and it has since been rumored that he was observed smoking pot with members of Pearl Jam backstage at a Neil Young show. The only one who was more aware of his charm and appeal than the female demographic of the greater Seattle-Tacoma area was Bartell himself. He would sit in front of his mirror while his makeup girl added a little color and contemplate adding a wink to his nightly sign-off. When his perfect skin had attained that unnatural yet on-air-ready shade of orange, his makeup artist gone, he would stand and square off with his own reflection. Are you ready? He'd ask himself. King Five's news bad boy, Clay Bartell. Let's do this. Pounding his chest once, he'd then head down the hall to shoot the live tease for that evening's program. Kelly loved hotels. Less than an hour after the first robbery, she gave me $500 bills out of random bundles of cash in her backpack, and I dropped her off downtown while I checked into the Four Seasons by myself. We figured that since tempting fate had worked out pretty well so far, we'd live like royalty for a night. If the door hadn't been kicked in by the cops come morning, everything would be fine. She locked herself in the restroom of the Elliott Bay bookstore, peeled off her sundress, and shoved it deep into the trash can making sure it was covered in paper towels and debris so as not to be discovered by a janitor or customer. 
she pulled her hair back in a ponytail and plain-janed herself up as much as possible to avoid unwanted attention. On her way out of the shop, she stopped and purchased a Houdini biography, a People magazine, and a cute pair of reading glasses. She didn't much care about the book or the magazine, and she didn't need the glasses, but she did want to appear a leisurely shopper and not a newly wanted felon. Mostly, she just wanted to break the seal on her first paycheck. She laughed maniacally as she dumped bundles of cash onto the bed from her backpack, then flopped into the giant comfy chair in the corner of the room. Toss me that room service menu, Charlie. I'm so hungry I could eat a rhinoceros dick. We didn't turn on the TV that night. We ordered rare steaks and one of every dessert they had. We got high and we fucked and we got high again. When night fell, we stepped onto the balcony wrapped in sheets and smoked cigarettes, staring at the lights of the city. I could see the live girl sign of the Champ Arcade blinking away, and I wondered if I still had a job. I never counted the money. I honestly didn't care. As long as there were hot and cold running narcotics, and my cock ended up in her mouth at least once a day, it didn't occur to me to ask questions. This afternoon, for the second time in less than a week, a woman walked into a Washington Mutual bank branch, handed the teller a note demanding money, and escaped on foot with an undisclosed amount of cash. King 5 has received this footage from the bank's security cameras from Seattle police, who are asking for help identifying the young woman. Clay Bartell watched on the monitor as the screen filled with sequential still images of Kelly walking up to the teller and placing a dark-colored backpack on the counter. She was wearing a long blonde wig with bangs she had cut herself that morning in our bathroom, dark wraparound sunglasses, and a very low-cut black vintage dress. Due to the angle of the camera, the most clear and concise images were those of her breasts and her hand passing the note forward. The only good shots of her face were a tad blurry, but not completely unrecognizable. We looked at each other as we watched this all unfold on the fucked-up TV from one of the fucked-up beds in our fucked-up motel room. Fuck. I pretended not to panic. She pretended not to panic. More on this story, news, sports, and the weekend weather when we return at 6 and 11 on King 5 News, finished up the dreamy on-air personality, as the music was cued and the screen once again filled with Kelly's best I-mean-fucking-business sneer. Then, something that would not be unfair to categorize as a miracle happened. Clay Bartell leaned over to his new co-anchor, Linda Savage, and said, Wow, that chick is hot. I would totally bang her. It wasn't just that he was being inappropriate. Bartell was always boisterous and a little crude. The problem was Miss Savage's mic was still live. Suddenly, the big story was not the news, but what happened after the news. Bartell had the highest ratings and the biggest paycheck of anyone in local television history, so the competition pounced gleefully. In cutthroat fashion, the other stations ran with the story within the story, furiously trying to dethrone their nemesis. And while they may have succeeded in terms of rallying advertisers to pressure him off the air, Seattle wasn't exactly a holier-than-thou hotbed in the mold of Birmingham, Alabama or Salt Lake City. Instead of shocked faces and finger-wagging, the men of our fair city just laughed and nodded their heads in solidarity, while the ladies secretly swooned at Bartell's reckless swagger. 
Not only was the competing station's coup d'etat a net failure, having given Clay Bartell the outlaw persona he so desperately craved, it also inadvertently made the lovely but potentially dangerous hot chick bank robber the it girl of the moment. Lying in bed half-naked in our smoky little room, we had no way of knowing all this, of course. The things we knew for certain were that misdirection and chaos were our friends, and, as became blazingly apparent as I switched from channel to channel, that Kelly had graduated from troublemaker to criminal mastermind to superstar in just a few hours. How the fuck do we celebrate this? I asked. Dick's Deluxe, fries and large vanilla shake, she said, pulling a hundred dollar bill out of her bra and sticking it in the waistband of my boxers. I knew what to do, and I knew that right away was the time to do it. The truth was that even though I was her conspirator, her facilitator of safe houses, her getaway car driver, mostly I was simply the errand boy. I don't say this as a disclaimer or any attempt to understate my role in these or any other illegal activities. Criminal empire-wise, this was our relationship, and I can't say that was not for the best. To this day, I am purposefully ignorant of any statute of limitations that might apply to this situation, and I hope to remain so. I'm still uneasy whenever I walk into a bank. My knees start to twitch nervously when I think of the bedlam that ensued over the course of those next several days. I was the errand boy not because I didn't want to be as guilty as she. I was just the errand boy because she knew that I was. I parked the car on a side street off Broadway, figuring that should it become necessary, it would be easier to run than to elude capture in a high-speed car chase through the often crowded parking lot of Dick's drive-in. It was also just nice to be out walking in the fresh air for a change, enjoying the smell of cigarette smoke and french fries. As I approached, I noticed a congregation forming on the sidewalk. A fast-acting and enterprising young screen printer with two large cardboard boxes had set up shop next to a store that sold stripper heels and trashy lingerie. His girlfriend stood on a milk crate and held the merchandise high over her head so both the crowd and passerby could see. It was a black t-shirt with white lettering. I'd totally bang her too, the Clay Bartell Defense Fund. You have these in girl sizes? I asked when it was finally my turn. Told you, dumbass, shot his girlfriend from above the mob. Large and extra large, said the entrepreneur. Two larges, then. He had no trouble making change for my hundred dollar bill. <laughs>